Then Mary said, Here am I, the servant of the Lord. Let it be with me according to your word. Please pray with me. Dear Father in heaven, we come before you once again this morning asking you to be here with us in this place, and we trust that you have kept your promise and are here. May my words now be your words, and all of our thoughts your thoughts. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. This morning, on this fourth Sunday of Advent, we are still waiting. I want to trace a single idea through the pages of Scripture, picking it out at three different points in the story of the Lord's redemption of humanity. Look at something in the Old Testament. Look at our reading this morning from the Gospel of Luke and a Pauline epistle. But if you'll indulge me, I'm going to look at them just a little bit out of chronological order. We're going to look at Genesis 3 first, in which the Lord promises that salvation will come into the world through a pregnant woman. Then we're going to skip forward to 1 Timothy chapter 2, in which St. Paul looks back at that promise being kept. And then finally, we'll look at Luke chapter 1, in which Mary becomes the focal point of that promise, the fulcrum, as she hears the announcement from the angel that she is to be the one who will bear the Savior of the world. So Genesis 3, the making of a promise. 1 Timothy 2, the reflection on that promise. And then Luke 1, the incarnation of the promise. But let's begin in the Garden of Eden, Genesis chapter 3. After Adam and Eve have sinned, and then they encounter God walking in the garden who pronounces curses on them for their sinfulness. But it's even in the midst of these curses, the consequences for their sin, having eaten the fruit, even there we get a promise. Even there is a hint of good news to come. In pronouncing his curses on man, woman, and serpent, the Lord proclaims what theologians have referred to as a proto-gospel. That is, the good news in its very earliest form before anyone could have known what its coming to fruition could have looked like. Any human being, that is. I will put enmity between you and the woman. The Lord curses the serpent. And between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This, Christians have understood, is the very first reference to the descendant of Eve so many generations later who will finally crush Satan and rescue us all from sin and death. This is a reference In Genesis chapter 3, to our Savior, Jesus Christ. And even though, as I said, there are consequences to sin, and indeed painful childbearing is part of Eve's curse, it is through that very childbearing that a Savior will come. 
So that's the announcement of the promise. From before history began to be recorded, from before years began to be counted, God promised a rescue and a rescuer born from the woman. Now let's turn our attention to the other end of the spectrum, to someone looking back on the keeping of this promise. And look at a verse that has sparked much theological debate for hundreds of years. This is 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15. So here's the verse just on its own. You'll see why it could be confusing. Yet, Paul writes, she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Now, of course, in order to understand that one verse, we're going to have to pull back just a little bit and look at the context provided by the preceding couple of verses. So let's start reading in verse 13. Adam was formed first, St. Paul writes, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet, he says, she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Now, the reason this context is important for us today, this section of Paul's letter is his teaching to Timothy about his rules for church leadership and organization. We need this context this morning because it helps us to understand who the she in verse 15 is. Yet she will be saved through childbearing. It seems to me that Paul is referring to Genesis chapter 3 here, the passage that we just read, and the story of Eve being deceived and becoming a transgressor in order to put us in mind of that proto-gospel, that earliest announcement of the good news. Yes, he seems to be saying, grievous sin was committed, but remember God's promise. Eve One of our first parents, deceived by the serpent, will give birth, and her descendants will give birth, and their descendants will give birth, and through that, salvation will come. In the context of this letter to Timothy, as he oversees churches in Ephesus, St. Paul is saying, there may be God-ordained role differences between men and women in church, but always remember to teach the people, Timothy, that in terms of their relationship between themselves and a holy God, men and women are exactly the same. They are saved through a childbirth foretold. And it's a continuing and lively faith in that Savior who was born, Jesus Christ, that Savior who redeems the sinner, man and woman alike. It's Jesus' birth that will lead to salvation for all of us. And Paul uses Eve's curse and the gospel promise within it to remind us of this good news. So now let's look to the middle point, the hinge, the fulcrum, the point at which both of these are pointing, to which Genesis looks forward and to which Paul looks back. In the sixth month, The angel Gabriel was sent by God to a town in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And the angel announces to Mary what's going to happen. She's going to conceive and bear a son. 
And I love Mary's answer. How can this be? For I am a virgin. She is so rational, so calm, like she's asking about the answer to a confusing math problem. How can this be since I am a virgin? One woman plus zero man should not equal a baby. And I also love the angel's answer because it acknowledges the real concern that Mary has. Can God actually do this thing that he has promised? And so after explaining about the Holy Spirit and the holiness of Jesus, the angel gives Mary an explanation, an illustration, showing her that virginity will be no obstacle to God. And now he says, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month for her who was said to be barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And then Mary says, Here am I, the servant of the Lord. Let it be with me according to your word. Now the first thing that I think when I read Mary's response, Here am I, servant of the Lord. Let it be with me as you say. I can't get over how unique I feel like this response must be in the history of the world. She's so full of faith. I mean, remember back in Genesis chapter 18, when the Lord makes a similar promise to Abraham, right? He tells him that Sarah, despite her age, is going to have a child. Sarah, who overhears him, laughs. I don't know about you, this is much closer to my common response when the Lord tells me what he's going to do. I remember I was 18 years old when a friend told me that I ought to think about the ordained ministry. I reacted like Sarah. I laughed. I laughed for about six years. I'd remember his words, chuckle, and just move on with my life. Then one day, as you might imagine, uh, like Sarah, I stopped laughing. You've probably heard the saying, we make plans and God laughs. I think that should actually be switched. God tells us what he's going to do, and we laugh. And the reason that we laugh is because we have such trouble actually believing that God can do the thing that he has promised to do. Because God's plans always seem impossible, don't they? Bringing his son into the world by a virgin. Bringing John the Baptist into the world, that's who Elizabeth's son is going to be, by a woman who was said to be barren. Making Abraham and Sarah an extremely old couple who could no longer have children, ancestors to many nations. Bringing his children enslaved in Egypt out to freedom, not around the Red Sea, but directly through it. Promising salvation even in the midst of pronouncing curses. This is what God does. This is what the angel means when he says nothing will be impossible with God. Our God does the impossible to show us that he is God. Anyone can walk around the Red Sea. Our God leads his people to freedom through it. It's normal in the everyday course of things for a woman to have a baby. God builds his family through barrenness and virginity. This is, of course, how God works to save us, too. 
Any king can require their subjects to work their way to their own justification. Our God comes to earth as one of us in order to redeem us to himself. To live as one of us, to die in our place, to be resurrected in order to make us right with him. When that friend told me that I should think about the ordained ministry and I laughed, the laughter lasted, like I said, for about six years until one day, I remember I was in the Sam's Club parking lot. Now, it wasn't the announcement of an angel. I didn't see Gabriel. I didn't even hear the audible voice of God. But there was a specific moment in my life where I knew that God had indeed made a calling on me. The realization wasn't exactly out of the blue. I'd heard it in one form or another for those six years. The shock was that it was actually going to be me. But having heard the story for all those years, I was finally ready. Mary, too, is familiar with this story. Mary would have known about the Lord's Genesis 3 promise to Eve that through childbirth, Eve's offspring would crush the head of the serpent. So for Mary, the angel's announcement wouldn't have come totally out of the blue. It would have been the culmination of a story she'd heard from her mother, who had heard it from her mother and so on for generations. The shock of this announcement to Mary wasn't that a young Jewish virgin would bear the Messiah, the Savior of the world. The shock was that it was going to be her. But she knew that God keeps his promises. She'd heard the story. And so in faith, she can say, here am I, the servant of the Lord. Let it be with me according to your word. Mary's faithfulness, her reliance on God's promises handed down over generations, makes the miracle of Christmas that we all know so well, that we're going to celebrate in full tonight, a child born of a virgin, both God and man incarnate, come into the world to save sinners. It makes this Christmas miracle just the latest in a long line of God's kept promises. They stand as more evidence that with God, all things are possible. Don't let that sentence slide by your ears. With God... All things are possible. Now, we just heard that sentence today, of course, when the angel is explaining to Mary how she, though a virgin, will give birth to the Son of God. God will do the impossible to bring Jesus into the world. But we also hear that same sentence, that God will do the impossible, when we're told elsewhere in Scripture what it is that Jesus came to do. So in Mark chapter 10... And Matthew chapter 19, we have the story of Jesus' interaction with a rich young man. You probably know this story. He asks Jesus what he must do to inherit eternal life. And in response, Jesus asks him for everything he has. Go, sell all you have, give the proceeds to the poor, and follow me. The young man, we're told, goes away sad, unable to give up his many possessions. You see, just part of of what the young man had wasn't enough for Jesus. 
what he might have been willing to give. Jesus wanted his everything. And so the disciples crowded around are amazed by this. They look at each other and they wonder, if this is the requirement, then who can be saved? And Jesus turns to them and says, with man, this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. The angel says it about a holy birth from a virgin mother. Jesus says it about the unearned salvation of a selfish sinner. And the two things are profoundly connected. At Christmas, we celebrate the birth of a Savior. The holy birth by a virgin mother makes possible the unearned salvation of a selfish sinner like you and me. St. Paul writes in Romans that sure, somebody might be willing to give up their life for a good person. That's understandable. Unfortunately, it doesn't help us. We're not good enough. But miraculously, says Paul, while we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. That's us. That's you. That's me. God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You see, it's no miracle when someone dies for a good man. It takes a miracle to die for a sinner. And you have a God who works miracles. You have a God who brings his children home through the sea. You have a God who brings a Savior into the world through a virgin. This miracle is pointed to by your first ancestors in the book of Genesis and referred to by Paul's letter to Timothy in the New Testament. This is the hinge upon which everything turns. Jesus came as God born of a virgin to be human, to live for you, to die for you, to be raised again for you. So now, in light of that, because of that completed work, you, even you, can echo Mary's awestruck faithfulness. Here am I, servant of the Lord. Let it be with me according to your word. Amen.